welcome to Always On Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. I'm Rosemary Maffey. And I'm Tom Lyman. We're coming to you from the Archdiocese of Boston. We hope to bring you some joy and encouragement during this challenging time. We'll do that this week, as always, by profiling the life of a saint who evangelized in a challenging time and by taking a look at somebody who's doing the same thing today. Welcome back to all our listeners. We want to encourage you to please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're tuning in on Apple, please do rate us and feel free to give us a high rating if you really enjoy these episodes. How's it going, Tom? Pretty good, Rosemary. How are you? Good. Well, it's exciting that we had, we just came out of a Holy Spirit-filled weekend. Yesterday was Pentecost, which was wonderful to celebrate. And on Saturday, we debuted a workshop on charisms. And wouldn't you agree that as we desire to live out our call to missionary discipleship, discovering and discerning our own individual charisms for the building up of the church is so important? I certainly do, Rosemary. So how was the rest of your weekend, Tom? It was good. You know, as we're beginning to open up society a little bit, so is our family. We're able to finally get together with uh, the grandparents so they can get their dose of grandkids, uh, but at social with social distancing still, you know, but we're with time, we pray that, that, that this will all turn for the better. Yeah. Awesome. Well, how beautiful to still have that in-person connection, even at the socially distant right. um, parameters. So today is my birthday. So the weekend was filled with some nice virtual celebrations, which was cool. Um, well, happy birthday, thank Rosemary. Thank you so much, Tom. So we actually have a gift for both of us and for our listeners. We have some amazingly fun news that we're actually continuing the podcast. So of course, we had initially thought, Tom, that we would offer this during the Easter season to bring folks some joy and encouragement. But as we all know, Easter is over. Um, this is the first week after Easter. But the good news is that we're going to continue this podcast at least through June. That's right. I'm happy that we're going to be able to continue this little mission together and, uh, and help accompany those who are also always on mission. So as we move forward, we thought it'd be fun to really engage you, the listeners. So we want to hear from you and create a conversation. And so with that in mind, each episode going forward, we're going to throw out a question to you. So this week, our question is, how has the Holy Spirit surprised you? Maybe in your ministry, maybe in your call to evangelize, maybe in your own walk with the Lord. How has the Holy Spirit surprised you? Share with us on social media. Use the hashtag always on mission and tag us. Our handle is RCAB underscore evangelize. So Tom, who's our saint for today? This week, our saint is St. Philip Neri, who actually we celebrated last week on May 26th on Tuesday. And he really is an extraordinary saint. He was known as the Apostle of Rome. He's a 16th century saint, born 1515 and lived until 1595. Uh, but I'd like to highlight him for two reasons, really. Uh, number one, because I think it's fascinating how God raises up particular saints in his church at particular times in the life of the church, you know, which now we look back on and we call that church history. But we can see how God was raising up someone like St. Philip Neri at the same time as the Protestant Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, and the Council of Trent and its reforms were being implemented. So these, these two things were happening at the same time and, and working together, in fact, in ways that, you know, that, that no one would have 
probably foreseen. Secondly, um, I like to highlight St. Philip because um, he's someone who uh, experienced certain desires and certain calls in his ministry, you know, and in his prayer life. He felt called to, to do one thing. And then when he investigated further, God took that desire and pointed it in another direction, something that he had not been expecting. In other words, St. Philip was at times in his uh, his life surprised by the Holy Spirit, you know, and, and many of us perhaps have been surprised by what the Holy Spirit had for us in the course of our our lives of faith. So, you know, who, what was his his early life and conversion like? So, uh, St. Philip grew up um, in, in a noble family in the city of Florence, so Renaissance Florence um, in Italy. And he was educated by the Dominicans at San Marco, which is the, the famous Dominican convent right in the center of Florence. And this was the place that Savonarola had come out of just, you know, 20 years before and had an enormous influence on the city and on the faith of many people, um, as controversial as he was. Uh, but, uh, Philip had was someone who very much had kind of a uh, a very good nature. He had kind of a gift of pure heartedness and faith from a young age, and did grow up in a devout family. When he was eighteen, though, his father decided to send him south to spend time with a relative. Um, who would kind of groom him to take on the family business, really to be a wealthy businessman. And this was in the town of San Germano, uh, south of Rome. Now, during his time there, this wasn't too far from the city of Gaeta, which is south of Rome, on the border of the, the, the Neapolitan region of Campania. And by in that area, there was a place that um, St. Philip who remember was fairly well formed in his faith already at the age of 18, he would like to go to pray. And it was actually a little chapel founded by the Benedictines on a mountaintop overlooking the bay of, or the, the Golfo di Gaeta, the Gulf of Gaeta. And uh, it's really a fascinating place. I've actually been there. And so this is kind of a neat thing. I, I knew the story rather that St. Benedict himself prayed at this spot, but I did not know that St. Philip Neri also prayed at this spot. And it actually turns out to be the place where he had his conversion. And when I say this is a little chapel, it's probably like the size of or smaller than the room that I'm in now. Um, it has like a single window overlooking, you know, the ocean from a magnificent height, you know, hundreds wow. of meters up. Um, so a very small, isolated, simple place um, kind of out there on the edge of the world. Um, and it, it's by this thing called the Montagna Spaccata, the mountain is, that is split in two. And they say that the legend holds that this mountain cracked uh, at the moment of Christ's crucifixion when the earthquake happened and stones were rent. You know, so this is the place where Philip was praying when he had a profound encounter with the Lord. Um, and he would later refer to this as his Christian conversion. So, you know, this is important for those of us who speak about a culture of evangelization and discipleship. When we look at the journey of discipleship, you know this, Rosemary, that we may well be baptized and sacramentalized and a person of deep faith, but even within that can have an even deeper conversion. And that is what happened with St. Philip at the age of 18, up on top of the Montagna Spaccata. Uh, and from that time, he he said, you know, thanks to his, his relative, and he, he said, I, I feel called to Rome. The Holy Spirit was impelling him to go to Rome, 
And he left beside, left aside rather, all of his worldly belongings, all of his property, um, and arrived penniless in Rome in 1533. That's the same year. So meanwhile, his, his his parents think they're sending him off to you know inherit the family business, and he's heading penniless like a beggar to Rome. Um, and he, because he was educated, he managed to find a job with a fellow Florentine tutoring his children, tutoring two young boys there. Uh, but he went on to spend the next 17 years as a layman living the apostolate. So living really a profound life of service um, and ministry, but as a layman, this was not a really common thing in those days. And he was doing this kind of outside of any religious community or like a parish structure, so to speak. Um, you know, he, he really had an individual kind of a charismatic call. For a while, he began to pursue an education that would have led him to the priesthood, and he spent three years studying at La Sapienza, which is still the University of Rome today, and he also studied theology with the Augustinians. But after that time, he kind of got bored with the studies, and he said, you know what, I'm going to sell my books and donate the money to the poor, enough studying. And no one ever really debated his formation or his theology from that point on. He was he had brilliant uh, theology and way of articulating it, uh, and did so with with a smile and with humor. But um, but spending time in study was no was was not for him anymore. What a powerful example of really listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I'd love to hear more about the act of apostolate, and I think our listeners would be fascinated to hear about how Saint Philip lived out his life as a hermit. That's right. And so he really began to devote his life to the sanctification of his own soul and that of his neighbor, you know, and um, he basically began by making visits alone to hospitals. And so he would just visit the sick uh, quite simply. And he began to invite others to accompany him. And he was able to do this because he really had quite a magnetic personality. He was a joyful man. And he would often say that, you know, uh, the Christian ought to be filled with joy, you know, um, that th this is a, a normal part. This should, just should definitely be a fruit of the Christian life, uh, this this joyfulness, this cheerfulness. Uh, and so he began to kind of just go to the places where people were. He would go to the shops and the warehouses and the banks and public places, and he would basically speak a word of encouragement to them and be inviting them to faith. And his, his his personality and his preaching, his lay preaching at this point, remember, his way of speaking about the faith, what is what what, what else is preaching but that, uh, speaking about God, um, drew others to him. And he even became uh, associates with people like Ignatius of Loyola, who was then active in his own um, early foundation of the Jesuits uh, in Rome by that point. And many of his friends this was a faithful group, people that he drew to himself. Many of them did end up going into the Jesuits, um, but many others became his associates and formed what would eventually become the Brotherhood of the Little Oratory. And so this is the kind of the very early stages of what we now know as the Oratorian Fathers, the, the founding of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri. So that's a bit about his 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 outward life. I mean, this is not the life of a um, someone who is cloistered, not someone who is uh, taking vows to to pray in a cell or pray only in the chapel or this sort of thing, but rather to go out and be with people, uh, people who were in need of the the gospel, you know. And so, 
they it can be said that he appeared not fasting to men you know if you observed him out and about he was uh, behaving you know in a way that would not strike one automatically as you know this this person with a profound deep prayer life um but actually in fact his private life was very much the life of a hermit uh he he fasted he his daily meal his one daily meal was bread and water sometimes he would add some herbs to that wow so i'm talking about extravagance here <laughs> adding herbs to his bread and water you know his he just in his one room he had a bed uh but he usually preferred the floor he had a table some chairs a rope for his clothes um and and was a man of of penitence um and you know because he was seeking holiness in this way he was not immune to um temptations from the enemy you know and some and oftentimes he he would simply ward off the devil by um by saying the name of the blessed virgin mary and, and inviting our lady to come to his aid and she flew rather the enemy flew away quickly whenever her name was mentioned so this is a man who was going on you know, purifying himself deeply, as as Ignatius would say, you know, uh, someone going from 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 good good work to good work. Um, his prayer life, Rosemary, is something that is is really fascinating. Um, he was initially praying a lot in the Church of Santa Eustachio, which, if you've been a tourist in Rome, this is not far from where the Pantheon is. So, really, the Centro Storico, the historic center of the downtown of of Rome, Renaissance Rome. And um, later on, he would visit what were known as the seven churches. But a lot of his most profound prayers happened in the catacombs. So, you know, the, the catacombs were something that people well knew about. They certainly weren't the tourist sites that they are today, but he had his way of accessing these these old secret places where the, the earliest church communities in Rome would pray and bury the dead. Um, and so uh, the one, the particular one, if you ever get to go, is the the catacomb of San Sebastiano, uh, and he would spend long hours in prayer there at night. So picture this: okay, we're in a cave. There's like you know the skeletons of of deceased Christians all around you, you know, and in here is where Saint Philip kind of cloistered himself on his own time, on his time off to pray. So here we are. We're at the. We just had Pentecost the other day. A few days before Pentecost in 1544, the well-known miracle of his heart took place. And this is how it is described by some of his biographers. They write, while he was with the greatest earnestness asking of the Holy Ghost his gifts, there appeared to him a globe of fire, which entered into his mouth and lodged in his breast. And thereupon he was suddenly surprised with such a fire of love that unable to bear it, he threw himself on the ground and like one trying to cool himself, bared his breast to temper in some measure the flame which he felt. When he had remained so for some time and was a little recovered, he rose up full of unwanted joy and immediately all his body began to shake with a violent tremor and putting his hand to his bosom, he felt by the side of his heart a swelling about as big as a man's fist, but neither then nor afterwards was it attended with the slightest pain or wound. And so his body was examined after his death. And what the examination showed was that his heart actually had been enlarged, literally enlarged by this sudden impulse of love. Wow. Um, and in order that this extra big heart might have room to move 
two ribs had been broken in his chest, and they actually curved around the heart in the form of an arch. And his heart would, from that time on, whenever he would perform any spiritual action, you know, celebrating the mass, hearing confession, you know, once he was a priest, his heart would palpitate like strongly. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> I mean, this is one of those really extraordinary things. And we say, you know, why, why does God allow these crazy things? Well, I think sometimes God allows these things to show us what his love can do. What, what is the power that God has? I mean, does this need to happen to, to you and me, to everybody? No. But I think when it happens to one person, the example can, can serve to really nourish us and to help us understand what God, who God is and what he can do in the individual soul. What an amazing thing to hear about, especially the day after Pentecost, Tom. And I love hearing the stories of how saints who have gone before us, what their prayer life really looked like. Because, of course, as disciples, we're all called to that regular prayer life, that regular time and intentional time with the Lord. You know what I also love about St. Philip Neri is that in the later years of his life as a layman, he founded a a confraternity. And I think that was a really powerful reminder to me that as disciples, we're really called to not only live out our own call to holiness, but to really walk alongside one another and encourage and support one another in that walk with the Lord. That's right. You know, I mean, in a way, you know, what what he was beginning, he founded this confraternity of the Most Holy Trinity in 1548, along with the priest who was his confessor. And this is while he was still a layman, but you know, it's what we might call today a form of small group discipleship. You know, we have a group of people gathering together to grow together in the faith, along with a mentor, along with someone who has more experience. And this is a time-honored method um, to help to, to help encourage one another in the, life, in the life of faith, right from the 12 apostles, Jesus and the 12 apostles. So we almost see Philip hearkening back to the very model of the apostles. But note, He's doing it within the context of a Catholic life, within the context of the Catholic Church. So right here at this same time in history, this is, you know, 30 years after Martin Luther had 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 hung his 95 theses on the on the door of the church. Um, and and following that, this is, you know, in the 10 years since the Church of England had separated, all these things had been happening kind of outside the Catholic Church. Um and so were, were there some things that were, were there some impulses of the reformers that were good? Absolutely. There were some things, but of course, being separated from, uh, from communion with the church, from the Holy Father, from the sacraments was the big error there. So what did, what did Philip do then? He invited this group to, uh, to meet together for mass, to receive communion, to pray together. And basically he would lead them in what he referred to as spiritual exercises, you know, basically different talks and exhortations and teaching them the methods of prayer. Um, and they would, he began a practice of adoration, adoration of the blessed sacrament uh, once a month. And so these were powerful methods that that worked for the people that he was encountering, um, including many young people who, who flocked to him, that he was very gifted um, in his reach. I find it comforting, Tom, that St. Philip, like many of us in our own discernment, experienced some in- uncertainty. Now, the clarity he got, <laughs> maybe we won't experience, but nevertheless, it's a great reminder to persevere 
in our discernment, to continue to listen to the Lord and beg of him to provide us some sort of clarity and peace, and he will give that to us. Yes, that's absolutely right. So in, in 1550, um, you know, he is now, what, about 35? Yeah. And he was beginning to doubt whether or not he should continue this active work with this kind of confraternity that he had founded. You know, we've just been hearing about the success of it. and he, But he was doubting whether he should retire into absolute solitude. You know, he had that draw to, um, to the life of the hermit. You know, we see how in his private time, he does live like a hermit, actually. Um, but he then received a vision of St. John the Baptist and another vision of two souls in glory, one of whom was eating a roll of bread. And this to him signified God's will that he should live in Rome for the good of souls as though he were in a desert and taking on penances like John the Baptist, abstaining from meat and things like this. So this, this was his signal that he was to stay in Rome and, and to serve those souls there. And that, that, you know, though he wanted to be kind of like a desert hermit, like the early hermits and early fathers of the monasteries, his desert would be Rome. And at that point, he felt a real call to the priesthood. Is that right? Well, he began to, you know, frankly, he was so humble he really personally never would have sought the priesthood. And it was only at the encouragement of his confessor who finally said, Philip, you need to be ordained. You know, it's time to become a priest because of the good he knew Philip could do as a confessor, as, um, as a, a priest at the altar, you know, celebrating the Holy Mass. Uh, and so his confessor is the one who finally you know, gave him that kind of holy nudge to to move forward and be ordained, and he was um, in just a couple of years there in the early 1550s. And that's a great reminder to us, Tom, about having good counsel, right? Maybe a spiritual director to help us in our discernment because St. Philip desired to follow the Lord, but he needed the wise and godly counsel of others to help him in that discernment of his vocation. So that's just so beautiful. Now, as you and I know, another mark of a true disciple is a deep love for the sacraments and reliance on them. And you and I are so excited that for the last two weeks, we've been able to return to Holy Mass and receive Holy Communion. But talk a little bit about St. Philip's love for the sacraments. Yes, he had a deep love of the sacraments, uh, even as a layman, long before priesthood. And he uh, had been someone who had, get this, he was quietly encouraging the frequent reception of the sacraments as if this was somewhat edgy at the time, that, that one should be receiving communion often or going to confession more often. Um, it's interesting that there was another priest at the time who was kind of well-known for, for being edgy in, in kind of promoting frequent communion. But Philip, interestingly, um, said that for uh, really we should be going to confession more often than communion, especially for the young, right? And see, he knew this because he said this because he knew that the, that confession was a route to holiness, a route to conversion. And so, uh, yes, frequent frequent reception of the sacraments. And he himself became a model of this once he was a priest, especially in the hearing of confessions. Um, he would hear confessions uh, from basically from daybreak until midday. And sometimes when that, when he couldn't hear everybody's confession, he would opt to hear confessions before dawn. You know, hear 40 confessions before the sun even rose. I mean, that that is a love of the sacraments and really a tremendous generosity as a priest 
to be willing to pour out God's mercy, to be willing to be the conduit, the mediator of God's mercy for those who needed it. And for this reason, especially, he became known as the Apostle of Rome. And he touched many, many hearts um, in this way. He even had the ability to read the hearts of some penitents. Um, and, and this was very powerful. His reputation for sanctity became well known across the city. But in his own celebration of the Mass, uh, he had, I don't want to call it a problem, but he had a particular challenge in celebrating the Mass because his devotion became so profound that at the Agnus Day, the Lamb of God, uh, the altar server would have to close the door and put a sign on the door that said, silence, the priest is celebrating Mass. Um, and Philip would remain basically in a rapture, kind of in, in holy ecstasy for two hours. And, you know, when the server would open up the door two hours later, Philip would be on the floor in a, like a profound state of union with God, almost to the point of looking like he had died. You know, so talk about a really marvelous, miraculous, Eucharistic devotion. Something I think, again, does does everyone need to exhibit that? No, but this should be a lesson for everyone about the power and the reality of Jesus in the Eucharist, body and blood, soul and divinity. Amen to that. So, Tom, when we're learning about the lives of saints who have gone before us or when we're really celebrating the lives of maybe our brothers and sisters who are living out a call to holiness, we might be inclined to want to model our lives after them, which, of course, we can do to a certain extent, but we also have to pay attention to our own unique call. And so I think it's really interesting that St. Philip himself wanted to follow the example of St. Francis Xavier and really felt like wondering, was he called to go to India like St. Francis Xavier? Yes. So, uh, you know, Francis Xavier really became kind of a, I think, if you want want to say kind of a rock star in terms of evangelization in the 16th century, in terms of the the age of uh, exploration that was just unfolding, you know, with the kind of the European discovery of the Americas and and the Far East. And so we, as as you know, St. Francis Xavier, you know, went to India and, you know, baptized thousands upon thousands. In fact, if you go to Rome, to the church of the Jesu, there are the two tombs of St. Ignatius of Loyola on one side and on the other, St. Francis Xavier. And right there encased in glass are the bones of the forearm of St. Francis Xavier. Why? Because with that hand, he baptized so many thousands of people in the Far East. Um, anyway, he was influential just by his the stories that came back about him. And so he actually... Uh, wanting to kind of keep his own apostolate going, but hoping to leave it himself to go to India. He kind of pushed some of his companions to be ordained a little faster so that he could kind of move along and, and, and head over to India. However, he sought the advice, this is wise again, seeking counsel of a Cistercian, um, Cistercian monk, Trappists at Tre Fontane. Tre Fontane is a, on the south side of Rome. It's um, the abbey founded on the site where St. Paul was executed. So St. Paul outside the walls is right around the corner where St. Paul is buried. But the place where he, he was beheaded and his head bounced three times and three fountains sprung forth from the earth, that's Tre Fontane, three fountains. So there's an abbey there now on that spot. And he went to this place. And the monk that he spoke with for advice 
communicated to him a revelation he had had from St. John the Evangelist that Rome was to be his India. So fascinatingly, twice poor Philip, who had grand designs, had to be reminded by God, I want you right here. You're right where I want you, you know? And, uh, and so this is a, another remarkable story about kind of the way God gives us a desire. He gave Philip a desire to go to India and, and really be a missionary to, to those who did not know God. But God took that desire within Philip and channeled it where he knew it was needed more. So, Tom, once Philip had that clarity in terms of how he was to live out the desire the Lord placed on his heart, he was then able to focus on building this apostolate. That's right. And this is where the oratory began to take um, uh, a much more developed form. And so what had been kind of informal meetings developed into regular spiritual exercises in an an oratory, which he built over uh, the local parish church. And so in, in these different exercises, even laymen would preach, in other words, give spiritual talks. But it also included music. The love of music was part of Philip's um, evangelization program. You know, you talk about truth, beauty, and goodness. So there you have it, the goodness, the charity that he lived in serving the poor and those in hospitals and reaching out to people in every walk of life. The uh, the truth that he preached and, and that he one-on-one shared with people in the confessional and the beauty of the liturgy and of the quality of their music. And this is something that even today is a feature of many of the oratories that still exist around the world. And I think it's interesting for many of our listeners to note that uh, Palestrina himself was one of Neri's followers. So um, Giovanni Pierluigi da Palestrina, who is the famous Renaissance uh, composer of polyphony, one of the greatest if not the greatest composer of polyphony of all time. Um, Polyphony meaning many voices when you have, instead of Gregorian chant with one voice, you have four or six or eight different voices singing the same words, but at different times, complementing each other, producing uh, vocal tensions, just absolutely uh, magnificent in beauty. Palestrina was one of these folks uh, attracted to Philip Neri and serving in the apostolate of the oratory. Thanks so much, Tom, for sharing about St. Philip Neri. Could you close us in a prayer? Absolutely. So this is the prayer from the collect for the mass on the the feast of St. Philip. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O God, who never cease to bestow the glory of holiness on the faithful servants you raise up for yourself, graciously grant that the Holy Spirit may kindle in us that fire with which he wonderfully filled the heart of St. Philip Neri. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Coming out of Pentecost this week, we loved hearing about how St. Philip Neri was really guided by the Holy Spirit in his ministry. The same can be said for our next guest, Lorna DeRoses, our friend and colleague. So stay tuned for that conversation. But before you do, I encourage you to maybe hit pause and go to social media. Let us know how you have been surprised by the Holy Spirit in your own ministry, evangelization, or walk with the Lord. Use the hashtag alwaysonmission and tag us. 
Our handle is RCAB underscore evangelize. Once you've done that, stay tuned for the next segment, our conversation with Lorna. to Always On Mission, Evangelizing in Challenging Times. Tom and I are thrilled to be joined by our friend and teammate, Lorna DeRoses. How you doing, Lorna? Fine, how are you? Good. We're so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Lorna, tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, your family, your ministry and work. All right, sure. Well, I live in Boston with my husband. Um, I have spent time in New York and in Haiti. And um, I come from a family who emigrated to the United States from Haiti, um, I would say now over 50 years ago. And so I've always had that sense of duality in living in an immigrant community, but also living here in the States. Um, I went to Regis College for my undergrad and for my master's in education, I went to Simmons. Um, I started working in the Archdiocese a little over 15 years ago. And um, my ministry while working with the Archdiocese has been serving black Catholics and the black Catholic communities that are here in the Archdiocese. And Lorna, explain to us more about your current ministry and that of your team. All right, sure. Um, our team, which is the Faith Formation and Missionary Discipleship for Ethnic Communities, is, I would say, a mirror team to your own, which is the Faith Formation for Missionary Discipleship, um, where your team would serve the various regions within the Archdiocese. Our team seeks to serve the various ethnic slash cultural communities within the Archdiocese. Um, in addition to serving them and helping them to be a part of um, Archdiocesan initiatives, we there to support them and the parishes that they're in, as well as assist them and their parishes. Um, we also at times in order to make sure that they have access to particular information, we make sure that there are information translated in their particular languages. So our ministry would be, for example, Sister Elsa serves the Hispanic community. Jamile Pandolfo serves the Portuguese-speaking community. And then um, Natalia Pelicano, who is the leader of our team, she serves the various Asian communities. So Lorna, around the Archdiocese of Boston, in how many different languages is Mass celebrated on a given Sunday? On any given Sunday, Mass is celebrated in over 20 languages within the Archdiocese. Wow. And what are some of those? Uh, Portuguese is the second language spoken within the Archdiocese of Boston, and that's because of the very large Brazilian and Cape Verdean communities. The, second, the next spoken language within the Archdiocese is Spanish. We have over 20 parishes where there is a Spanish-speaking community. And the next spoken language would be Haitian Creole. And then after that would be Vietnamese. And they both have approximately nine parishes where there are either Haitian Creole or Vietnamese being spoken. 
How beautiful to think about our Archdiocese of Boston reflecting the universality of the church. And so that's just so wonderful. We have a team dedicated to the various communities represented in our Archdiocese. Tell us about how your work changed when the pandemic hit. Wow, that was, I I would say, an amazing shift for us. Um, it became, I would say, very personal because we were reaching out to our the leaders in our communities via WhatsApp, via messaging, um, giving them phone calls, sending emails, um, and just talking to them and encouraging them through the changes. Um, in addition, our office, we also were able to have a Facebook page so that we could share information directly with a lot of folks. We also began to shift the way we would send out our flock note email information. Um, we would make sure that we would have evangelization recommendations and resources that they could use. Um, and our communities just shifted along with this. I, I saw this amazing outpouring of people just reaching out to one another. And it was great, you know, at whatever point, a few people reached out to me and said, well, you've been reaching out to us and we want to know that you and your office are doing well. And that was very encouraging. Um, a lot of our communities um, switched over to having mass online, whether it was via Facebook or YouTube. Um, and then um, there were various prayer groups that would have their prayer or online via free conference call or Zoom. Um, and um, there was one group that they began doing the rosary um, online as well. And um, the Stations of the Cross were done via Zoom. So Lorna, I've heard that you've had a really beautiful blessing and been able to expand the reach and scope of your wonderful ministry, both in terms of those who might not have set foot in a church in a while and even beyond the geography of our archdiocese. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. I think one of the amazing things that has happened is that not only have the people locally been a part of these initiatives, whether it's mass or praying the rosary together, but a lot of people from other places like Miami, Puerto Rico, um, Schenectady, New York. Um, I was on a call with one of the groups and somebody from Georgia who you know, hadn't really been connected with any of the Haitian communities there. And she was on the call praying the rosary. And, you know, another call I was on um, with the praying the Stations of the Cross, you know, there were over 500 people on this call. That, you know, these things just are amazing because you think, okay, there'll be a few people, but what that number will look like, you don't know until someone calls it out to your attention and you go, my goodness, you know, and perhaps some of these people were folks who probably would not have come to church, but during this time felt this need and they felt the stirring and this longing and they were joining in to pray with our communities. And many were also receiving the information that we were sending via WhatsApp or Facebook as well. And it's great to see that. How powerful that you've experienced um, the opportunity to reach out to people who might not ordinarily attend church. That's really a powerful example of how evangelization continues during this pandemic. 
Lorna, how has the pandemic affected your own walk with the Lord? I think like most people, you know, when this first happens, you, you just kind of feel like, oh, what what is this? And especially during Lent, you thought, oh, my word, what a Lent this is going to be, you know, Lord help. But, um, you know, I think the blessing in all of this uncertainty and this questioning for me has been a couple of things. I have a friend that I you know, she and I have become prayer partners during this time, which has been a, a wonderful blessing. Um, and I've had more time to spend with the Lord in prayer. And another thing that has been a blessing is that, you know, being able to participate in the Mass virtually, whether it's in New Orleans or in Pétionville or in Boston itself, I've had an opportunity to experience Mass in different places. Um, and I've also had an opportunity, it was, it, you know, I, I have to share this story with you. You know, in the beginning, I, I just found myself feeling a bit disoriented by the fact that we weren't able to attend Mass. And I felt led to think about the fact that even before the shelter in place, there were so many people around the world who, for various reasons, whether it was unrest in their own countries, persecution, or other reasons, they were not able to go to Mass and receive the communion or receive the sacrament of reconciliation on a regular basis. And I just had to step back and say, okay, then this is my way of standing in solidarity and praying with them and for them, you know, as well as praying for my brothers and sisters who are here, who are going through this with me as well. That's beautiful, Lorna. You really offer a witness of, of solidarity, but also in um, in standing together at the cross, really, you know, with, with, with others who are... Um, you know, suffering the same things at this time. So a beautiful witness. You know, Lorna, we ask all of our guests, what does it mean to be always on mission? And how might you encourage others to evangelize in whatever way they might be called? Well, we're always on mission. We are called as Catholics to be on mission. We're, Christ called us to go and share the good news. And even though we're navigating unfamiliar waters, um, we know that Jesus is steering the boat for us and he's guiding us and leading us toward the Father. And so even if the times are uncertain, we know that the mission is certain. We just have to look at, you know, reaching out to a friend, whether it's a phone call, just to check on that person and having a, a brief conversation. And at the end of the conversation saying, well, you know, please know I'll, I'll, be, I'll be praying for you. Um, something like that, I think, is a way of just letting people know that you're thinking of them. But living out your witness in a different way, you may not be able to be with them in person, but however you can reach out to let them know. Um, that you're praying for them, you're praying with them. I think that's a way of witnessing Christ. And I would encourage people to find that way that they can continue to be on mission. Thank you for that, Lorna. You know, so today is the day after Pentecost, the, the great celebration we have at the end of the Easter season. 
how, how would you encourage listeners to call upon the Holy Spirit to guide them in the work of evangelization? I think um, just to ask the Holy Spirit to guide them and show them the way that they can evangelize, show them the way that they can reach out to particular people that they know in their lives. I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we think, oh, we should be reaching out one particular way. But really, truly, I think it's through the guidance of the Holy Spirit that we can find the way in which we can reach out to the person in the way in which they can uh, respond to. Um, I think it's important for us to pray for the whole, to the Holy Spirit for help and for guidance at this time, especially during this time of the day after Pentecost. Amen. Thank you so much, Lorna. Lorna, what a joy it is to speak with you now and to work alongside you in mission. I hope that those listening are inspired by your creativity and the way you live out your ministry, particularly in these challenging times in the way you really stay close to Christ in the cross amidst trial, and in the way you are united to your brothers and sisters in prayer, those who are near and far. Could you please close us in prayer? Sure, I'd be happy to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to talk about the way in which we can share the good news of your son, Jesus. We ask that you would bless all of our efforts as we seek to evangelize, the, as to seek to be disciples for you. We ask that you would help all of our brothers and sisters who are in search of ways to share the gospel, to share the good news, help them to find the way in which they can do it, whether it could be the smallest way, whether it would be a kind word, a smile, um, whatever that might be, Lord, I would just ask that you would direct them. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless the efforts of this podcast to encourage all of us here in the Archdiocese and beyond to share the good news as well. I ask this through your Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, who lives and reigns with you now and forever. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Lorna, and thank you for tuning in to Always on Mission Evangelizing in Challenging Times. We want to remind you to please subscribe so you're notified when the next episode comes out. If you're listening on Apple, please be sure to rate us, and if you really enjoyed it, give us a high rating. We look forward to being with you next week. God bless. God bless.